You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's so wonderful to be here. Thank you, Andrew, for that warm introduction. It's always a little surreal as someone who was here as a teenager and uh, who kind of still walks into most churches thinking it's going to look like this because that's the architecture in my mind uh, from those formative years. But it is so, so it's nice to actually for it to look like this. Uh, I'm glad to be here and thank you for welcoming me. And you might have just realized I've chosen quite a strange text. Uh, this stuff about fig trees in the New Testament. Anytime you hear about fig trees, you know, move on to the next passage, sort of. I think that's what people do in the New Testament. Fig trees are to the the New Testament what uh, apple trees are to the Old Testament. They kind of get a bad rap. They they don't do well. That's a little Bible humor for you on a um, Wednesday afternoon. But it's a strange parable, and it's quite a, uh, it's not that well known. At least it wasn't very well known to me before I uh, was preaching on it. Um, there was a famous incident where Bertrand Russell, the great British philosopher, um, said that this parable was a contributing factor to him becoming an atheist because he could not assent to a God who would wield the blade. He couldn't assent to a God who would wield the blade. So let's see if. He had, if he was on to something here or not. Because there are three figures in this parable. Just three. There's a landowner, a gardener, and a fig tree. Easy enough. I guess we can consider a fig tree. It's not really breathe, a, a living person, but you know what I mean. The fig tree. What we know about the fig tree is it's not bearing any fruit. This fig tree, for whatever reason, cannot produce It's a lemon of a fig tree. Get it? Yep. This feeling of not being able to produce, it draws me in. Hopefully it draws you in too. I mean, that that sense of wanting to produce but not being able to, it is something, it's it's almost like an angst that some of us feel from time to time. Maybe you feel like you're unable to produce the results that you would like to at work. Or you go to the gym every single day, but you cannot seem to produce the results that would turn you into the Adonis that the gym seems to be advertising to you all the time. That's, that's my problem, clearly. Um, maybe you want to be able to produce a sermon, but you just keep watching videos of George Harrison. And it just, for example, hypothetically. Um, this lack of result, this lack of fruit, leads the vineyard owner to come and say, why should it be wasting the soil? Why should this tree be wasting the soil? Why should we allow it to waste resources 
and really to waste space. Waste. To waste space. Is this not an accusation that haunts all of us? I, I happen to think it is. I mean, yes, we feel if, if you go to some place and they've really cooked a beautiful meal for you and you're just not that hungry or you by mistake ate before you got there, you don't want the food to go to waste. And I'm constantly telling my children, who are now eight, six, and two, not to waste the food. It doesn't have much of an effect on them, by the way, but that's, maybe you can help me there. But let's talk about something that's a little bit more serious. Maybe I was talking to a couple recently who, who felt that they'd wasted uh, $150,000 uh, paying tuition for a college that uh, their child decided not really to go to class very much. There's a sense of wasted. Maybe you feel like you wasted your own education that you spent years training for something that you don't seem to really use very much. Perhaps you have things that you've wasted, but more common, I think, is the feeling of wasting time. You wasted the weekend watching cooking shows when you could have been cooking. <laughs> you wasted an opportunity at work. You really phoned it in for about you know, a year, and now a promotion has passed you by. Um, I work with students at the University of Virginia, and I'll tell you, over the past 10 years, the amount of fourth-year students that I've sat across the table from who are petrified about making the wrong move after graduation, about wasting an opportunity, about somehow doing the wrong thing, they're panic-struck by the first-year-out question, and they're doing their best not to show it. They, are, they have been told that they need to optimize every conceivable moment and if they don't, they're going to end up way behind their classmates and in a gutter somewhere. I don't know quite what it is, but this injunction against wasting any time is very strong. But there's even more than that, because we're actually less afraid, I think, of wasting time in the future than afraid that we've wasted time in the past. Did you waste your 20s on a marriage that didn't work out? Did you waste your 30s on a job that didn't go anywhere? Did you waste your 40s being bitter and depressed? Did you waste your entire adult life being angry or afraid? Maybe you wasted a couple decades being wasted on alcohol or sex, materialism, whatever it is. I, we all wrestle with this. So you're a fig tree, and I'm a fig tree. Welcome to the vineyard. There's an owner here in the parable Jesus tells us who's angry and impatient and wanting results and he wants them yesterday. Now a quick read of the parable might say, well, this is clearly the vineyard owner, the person in charge. That must be God, right? Jesus is talking about God here. But it doesn't sound to me much like the God, at least the God revealed in Christ. But it does sound a lot like other familiar voices that I know. Maybe what about the voice of the culture? which has enshrined productivity as our highest moral value, pretty much the only thing we can really agree on, is productivity is important. My favorite Onion article from the last couple of years is that great headline from the, the satirical newspaper. It said, laid-back company allows employees to work from home after 6 p.m. You know, you know what I'm talking about? 
Here's to read from it. If it helps them be efficient and get more done, I have no problem with people working remotely once they've left the office for the day. Said Sapphire CEO of marketing, uh, Matt Avalon, who noted that since they don't have to be in the office for any meetings, employees are also free to work from home on weekends and holidays. Workaholism. It's growing. It's a real thing. Americans clock, I think, uh, some... 1,788 hours a year, which is 120 more than our counterparts in Britain, and 300 more than our counterparts in France, and 400 more than those lazy Germans. <laughs> Germans aren't actually very lazy. And guess what? The, the people who work the most, it's the 10% it's the wealthiest men in America. Think about that. That's actually, historically speaking, that's extraordinary. Because the rich have always worked less than the poor. Read a Jane Austen novel. <laughs> the people gloried in their idleness. You wanted to distance yourself as much as possible from the lower echelons of society who had to, no choice but to work. And a couple centuries later, the exact opposite holds sway. To be busy is a status marker. Even the sick day. The New York Times issued an obituary for the sick day last year. Do you know that? The death of the sick day. For many office workers, working from home has replaced a day spent recovering under the covers. So what's going on? What's happening here? Well, there is a real justification. I think we have we've decided to justify ourselves not by our holiness or not by our obedience to God. We are justified by what we produce. We are justified by our paycheck. We are justified by our job title. We are justified by the hours we're putting in, in which case, if you don't get to the office, you might get behind someone who is there. So we start to treat illness as a threat to productivity rather than a source of suffering. I can't help but think, because I'm in Alabama, what about Harper Lee, you know? She produced one book. Let's, that ghost at a watchman thing didn't happen. She produced one book, and it was enough. That is a mammoth protest against a culture that tells us that you have to keep production up every single day or be forgotten or be overtaken. But let's not shift the blame entirely. The voice of the vineyard owner is not just out there. That's the voice inside. The voice that judges myself and, other, and wonders why I never can seem to produce what I set out to. That inner voice that fuels performance anxiety. Better make things happen or you'll be cut down. Better not waste a moment. Better not waste any space Maybe you know someone who gets everywhere five minutes late. It's a pathology, as you know, uh, and I happen to suffer from it. And, you know, years of therapy have taught me that what's really going on is that uh, I'm afraid of wasting time. So I'm aiming to get wherever I'm going exactly on the dot. And because the world is not under my control, I get everywhere five minutes late in which case I show up and I have to apologize immediately, giving up whatever power I've got in that situation, supplicating myself to some dentist or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, I'm going in, and if it's a job interview, I don't know what, but it's not good. And it has to do with my fear of, of waste. I want to maximize 
every moment I have. And this the idea of maximizing, this is a, a great uh, cultural uh, you know, affliction. And it is the voice of the law. It is the voice of the law. Thou shalt make no mistakes. Thou shalt optimize thy schedule. Thou shalt never uh, uh, waste um, an afternoon. Of course, it seems like Jesus is interested in some kind of production. But it's not production for the sake of production. In this case, the vineyard owner, the gardener, they're interested in people in the tree bearing fruit. And what he's talking about there is the fruit of repentance, which is humility, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. But God is not the vineyard owner. We are both the tree and the vineyard owner at the same time. Both the one who does not produce and the one who harshly judges the lack of production. You could say that we are our own defendant, judge, jury at the same time. What about this gardener, though? What about this funny gardener? He is the only one that knows anything about fruit production. The vineyard owner doesn't know what he's talking about. The gardener is an expert. What looks like waste to the vineyard owner does not look like waste to the gardener. And isn't that true in life? Isn't that true in life? We are terrible judges of what was a good use of our time and what wasn't. You know, the amount of times I've, I've been doing stuff with, uh, in ministry for years at this point, the amount of time that people come up to me and say, you know, what really meant a lot to me is when you said or wrote such and such. I was like, I have no recollection of that. But what I thought at the time was it was really important that I finish this book I was writing. You know? The great example for in my career is that we had a, we had a, um, a conference in Pensacola one year. It was like the second time we'd done it. And my wife was, uh, we was having a baby. I couldn't go. No one just wanted to come. There were 25 people in a room in Pensacola. And it seemed like a mammoth waste of energy and time and money. Come to find out, my longest standing employee was one of the people there. Our, the, the, we, we discovered sort of our most faithful donor at that, at that uh, little conference. And we got two books out of it. What looked like, wait, I, have, I, have, I, I lost the authority that I'd never had in the first place to judge what was wasteful and what wasn't. And maybe you've got an experience like that in your own life. I hope so. It's actually comforting. It's actually comforting to, to, to know that there is a gardener and you are not he. But what does this gardener do? It's not just, he's, not, he's not sort of a totally you know, passive figure. He steps in and he says, no, not yet. Do not cut down this tree. He takes charge of making that tree bear fruit. The caretaker is the one who safeguards the tree. He comes in with, like, with basically hand up and advocates, advocates for that which is not bearing fruit. And he says, one more year, one more year. And to make this tree bear fruit, what does he do? He digs around it, he sort of, which is kind of a destructive action, and then he puts manure on it. What's manure? Waste. It's waste. Waste itself. That is how the gardener in this parable fertilizes that tree. 
That which you deem unimportant, ugly, shameful, may in fact be the means of your eventual bearing fruit. This is an extraordinarily hopeful word to those of us who look around at our lives, and that's all we see sometimes. The writer and memoirist Mary Carr, who I admire greatly, she had a book that came out a few years ago called The Art of Memoir. And she was talking about how do you write memoirs. Everyone today is writing memoirs. No one writes novels anymore. It's just memoirs. Um, and she's looked at hundreds of manuscripts, and she's trying to summarize what she's learned. And she says, she, she comes to this conclusion. She says, we each nurture a private terror that some core aspects of either ourselves or our story must be hidden or disowned. And yet, with every manuscript I've ever edited, even from the most established writers, the traits a writer often fights hardest to hide serve as undeniable facets of both self and story. The waste is what makes the book. That's what she's saying. All right. So to close, or to get closer to closing, you and I make the mistake of looking for God in those parts of our lives that appear tidy and accomplished and dry clean only. But if you feel like you're wasting space or that your space has been wasted for you, then hear this today. In God's economy of your life, there is no waste. For what is the cross but an apparent waste? This Jesus, this Christ who had so much potential, who was going places, prime of life, that vitality flushed down the drain in the most reprehensible and embarrassing manner possible. And yet this stone that the builders reject becomes the cornerstone. In other words, God uses a supremely wasteful act to redeem not only you, but the world. This is how he is revealed. And for that reason, we know that nothing, nothing, no matter how wasteful it appears, is beyond the reach of his redemption and healing. But what's more, the judgment due you and me for our procrastination, for our terrible priorities, for our supreme judgment of other people and their priorities, that judgment due you and me is deferred by the one who was cut down. This Jesus on whom the blade of condemnation definitively fell. Some of you might have read the book When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi. At 36, he was a neurosurgeon with a, with a bright future. He was going places. And he, had st he contracted stage 4 lung cancer. And so he wrote a book in his final months that were actually a letter written to his baby daughter. It's a wonderful book. I hope you read it. But let's, before I read you the passage, what do we know about babies? Well, we know that they produce quite a bit of waste. And we know that they take and they don't give much. They don't seem to be very productive at all. They don't bear much fruit that we can see. This is how Paul ends his book. Speaking to his daughter, he says, When you come to one of the many moments in life when you must give an account of yourself, 
provide a ledger of what you have been and done and meant to the world. Do not, I pray, discount that you filled a dying man's days with a sated joy, a joy unknown to me in all my prior years, a joy that does not hunger for more and more, but rests satisfied. In this time, right now, that is an enormous thing. Praise God and amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.